It's good to see all of you guys this morning. I hope you're doing well. Uh, it's, you know, it's been, we had some great weather this weekend. Yesterday was beautiful. I know my hands are sore from doing yard work. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the day as well. Um, but if you weren't here last week, uh, Pastor Chris, he kicked us off in our new series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount that we've entitled Upside Down. And we, as pastors, we're really excited about this series. Uh, it's always good to be in the Gospels, but, uh, you know, in the past we've gone through the book of uh, Mark, we've gone through the book of John, and this time we wanted to be in the Gospels, and so we, uh, you know, chose here the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, we're going to be in it for quite a while. It's going to take us all the way up until the summer. And again, if you missed last week, I want to encourage you to, you can go online and listen to that. But uh, what Chris did is he, he kind of, at the beginning, he did a 10,000-foot overview or a 10,000-foot flyover of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And then he uh, circled back around and he walked us through those first 12 verses in Matthew chapter 5. And what we saw was, is that those first 12 verses, those uh, Beatitudes, as they've been called, they describe what a Christian is. In other words, they describe who we are. However, we saw that in order for that to be true of us, we need a new life. In other words, those qualities are so unattainable in and of ourselves that we need to be recreated. Again, we need a new life, a new heart, and yet we saw that that can only come through our new hero, who is Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we not lose sight of these truths as, truths as we continue on in this series, because really, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is describing what Christians are to do, what their lives are supposed to look like, and yet none of us can live any of this out without Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so with that said, this morning, uh, we're going to move on in the sermon, and we're going to uh, pick it up in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. And so if you will, uh, go ahead and stand, and we'll read today's passage together. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father... We just ask this morning that you would uh, illuminate this passage to us. God, that you would touch our hearts by the power of your spirit, that we uh, will leave different than when we came in. And we realize that that is only something that you can do. And so we just invite that. We ask you to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so this morning we're going to be talking about uh, what it looks like to be salt and light in the world. And if you're a note taker, uh, our outline this morning is this. In the passage, we're going to first see the call, the conflict, and then finally the course or the pathway. So starting with the call, look back down at verse 13. It says again this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of, a, of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the all in the house. And so here we have Jesus. He's still uh, very much at the beginning of the sermon, and he gives us these two different analogies. Uh, And these two different analogies, they are describing the call, or you could even say the mission of his followers. He looks right out at his disciples and he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And notice he doesn't say you have salt, you have light, but he says you are the salt. You are the light. In other words, Jesus is not asking them and he's not asking us to become something we're not but to become something we already are by virtue of following him. Now, given these two analogies of salt and light, what is Jesus telling us about our calling? Well, in the ancient world, salt was primarily used as a preservative uh, or also to flavor things. And the way that it was used as a preservative is is they would take uh, the salt and they would rub it into uh, meat, raw meat that, that they were wanting to preserve. And obviously they did this because they didn't have refrigeration like we do today. And so if they wanted to keep their meat from going bad, they they would have to use the salt to preserve it. And so as you rub the salt in, it then draws the moisture out of the meat, which then will keep bacteria from growing, which will then keep you from getting sick or even dying. And so uh, it's a good thing. Salt has an impact on the meat. Uh, As well from uh, history and other parts of scripture, it's evident that salt was used to flavor things, much like we use it today. It's used to make things more appetizing. And so typically, uh, different commentators will pick one of these two uh, uses of salt and try to explain uh, some of what Jesus is talking about here. Try to make uh, conclusions about what he's trying to communicate. So, for example, if you go the preservative route, you might conclude that Jesus is saying that the world is decaying. It's rotting. It's like a it's like a rotting piece of meat. And so as Christians, we're called to be the salt that preserves the world that stops it from decaying. Now, if you go the flavor route, they they may say something like this. You know, the purpose of salt is to flavor things, to make things more appetizing. And so as Christians were to live and speak in such a way as to make the ways of God more appealing in, in other words, we're to, we're to show God's wisdom and his design for human flourishing by, by living lives that are so distinct and so attractive to the world. In other words, uh, they may say something like this, we're to be so salty that we make people thirsty for Jesus. Maybe you've heard that before. And so which one is it? Well, I'll tell you what, I've looked at and thought about this for about a week now, and I still have no idea. But I'll tell you this, in some ways, I don't think it really matters. Because I think the bigger message Jesus is trying to communicate here is this. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are to have an impact. We are to have an influence on the world around us. And I think that point, it's much clearer in the second analogy when he says this, that you are the light of the world. Because the reality is both salt and light, they impact the things they come in contact with. Salt does impact meat. Light does impact darkness. And so let's look at this light analogy a little bit more. Uh, Again, verse 14, he says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives a light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. 
And so here we see Jesus kind of flush out our calling a little bit more. He says, you are the light of the world. Which is crazy because in the book of John, John chapter 8, Jesus tells the, the crowd that he is the light of the world. He goes on in that John 8 passage to say this, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, earlier in the book of Matthew in chapter 4, right before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we read this passage that says this, that, that Jesus went and he lived in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And that by doing that, he was fulfilling prophecy from the book of Isaiah, which said this. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so this is truly amazing. Jesus is the true light of the world. The one that was promised and, and talked about in the Old Testament. And yet here, today in our passage, he looks at his disciples and he tells them, you are the light of the world. And it's not as if Jesus is getting confused. You know, wait, am I the light or are they the light? No, he, he's not confused. Rather, by, by telling them that you are the light of the world, he is inviting them. And he is inviting us today to join him, to partner alongside of him in reaching and impacting a dark world. And so that's the first point here in this passage. We have been given a calling. And our calling is to live in such a way to impact the world around us. But let's move on to our second point here in this passage, and that is this. There's a conflict you know, on the surface of things, it would seem easy enough that our, our calling is to impact the world around us. But as we dig into this passage, we see a couple of things that hinder us or that cause us not to live out this calling. And the first thing that, uh, to note here is this, that, that given the nature of the calling and the analogies that Jesus uses, he is communicating that by following him, we are automatically made distinct from the world. You know, we are salt because the world uh, needs salt. We're called to impact the world because the world needs impacted. We're called light because the world is in darkness. There's even that passage in, in Colossians 1 that we looked at a couple months ago that says this, that, that in speaking of Jesus, that he delivered us from the dominion of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so by the, the very nature of the, that we've been transferred into a new kingdom, there is a conflict. You see, as believers in Christ, we are distinct from the rest of the world. We are different. But the problem is, is that, uh, you know, most people don't like those who are different from them. And they especially don't like them when their beliefs and their values rub up against their own and even challenge their own. We see Jesus comment on this in John 3, 19. He says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so what that means, again, is that there is a conflict because the world doesn't want to be changed. It, it doesn't want to be impacted. And yet that's the very thing that Jesus has called us to. And so there is a clashing of kingdoms. On the one hand, you have the kingdom of the world, the, the, the kingdom of darkness. And on the other hand, you have the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of light. And when those things interact, there is a conflict. 
You know, believe me, it's no accident that the passage about salt and light comes uh, immediately after uh, verses 11 and 12 in Matthew, which say this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, the reason that that Jesus has to warn us about losing our saltiness or hiding our lights is because it's hard to be distinct and different from the world, especially when it persecutes you, especially when it doesn't like you very much. You see, the truth is, is I think most of us, we want to be liked. We want to be affirmed in our beliefs. We see that illustrated multiple times throughout uh, the, the nation of Israel's history. In fact, just the other day I was reading in 1 Samuel and, and, and it, they come to this point where they just they come to the prophet Samuel and they beg him to anoint them a king. And the reason they give for wanting a king is because they want to be like the other nations around them. You see, because it's hard to be different. And the truth is, none of us want to be the odd man out or the weirdo in the crowd. And that's why as Christians, we've done silly things throughout the years where uh, we, we've tried to copy things from the world to try to fit in. You know, we've done, you know, we've just taken things from the world. We've borrowed them. We've tweaked them. We've made them, quote unquote, Christian. And so we've done things like this, like, oh, you like Coldplay? Oh, me too. And, and actually, I know this Christian band and they sound just like Coldplay. You should check them out. Can we be honest here? There's no Christian band that sounds just like Coldplay, okay? And that's okay. We don't need to pretend and, you know, yeah, those newsboys, they sound just like... No, they don't, and that's okay. Don't worry about it. Or another weird thing we've done throughout the years is, is we found out that the world or that, you know, people around us, non-believers, that they like a certain athlete or a musician or, or maybe even a TV show, you know, something like Duck Dynasty or Fixer Upper, and we see things like, hey... Yeah, that Duck Dynasty, isn't that a funny show? And hey, did you know those guys pray every episode before they eat dinner? Isn't that, wow, that's interesting, isn't it? Or, you know, Fixer Upper, we're like, what an awesome show. I mean, you know, Joe Anna, she just decorates houses so wonderful. And that chip, he's so funny. And, you know, does anyone know what I'm talking about, Fixer Upper here? Okay, all right. But then we're like, hey, did you know that they're Christians? Yeah, I know. They're cool, but yet they're Christians. (laughs) <laughs> like that, you know, it doesn't happen or something. And, and it's like we're so desperate to fit in, to be liked, to be affirmed by our culture. And yet it almost always backfires on us. Because as is the case with both of those examples, it eventually comes out that, yes, they are, in fact, Christians. And surprise, surprise, they hold to a biblical view of sexuality and marriage. And like overnight, the world goes from loving them to hating them. The world goes from saying, wow, isn't this a great show to these people are dangerous. We need to pull them off the air. And so it backfires on us. And I think what Jesus is saying here in this passage is, look, guys, don't do that. You are distinct. You are different. And yes, there is a cost to following me. And sometimes that means people will hate you. Sometimes that means they will misunderstand you or misrepresent you. Sometimes that means that, that people will make fun of you. And yet, in order for you to fulfill this call on your life to impact the world, it's going to require you to keep your saltiness. It's going to require you to shine your light. Hide it under a bushel? 
No, right? In other words, Jesus is calling you and he's calling me to live lives that are uh, to live our lives, to live our Christianity out loud in the open, not annoyingly so. But he is calling us to be bold, to be distinct. You see, the bottom line is this, the Sermon on the Mount, and I think this passage in particular is going to push you to trust in the goodness of God. Because the reality is what Jesus has called us to, it isn't easy. It is at times scary and it does require trust. And the warning that Jesus gives us here in this passage is this, that if we compromise, if we are unfaithful, we will diminish our witness and therefore our impact on the world. Uh, One famous commentary on the Sermon on the Mount is by John Stodd. and, And in that he said this, he said, you are light. And so you must let your light shine and not conceal it in any way, whether by sin or by compromise or by laziness or by fear. Another pastor up in Michigan, Kevin DeYoung, he said it this way. He said, our ability to make a difference in the world depends on our willingness to be different from the world. And so if that's true, and I believe that it is, let's walk through a couple of questions here to think through this, to see uh, if, in fact, we are living lives that are distinct or different. Number one, as a Christian, are you distinct and different from the world in your priorities? In other words, if I or if someone else would would, uh, have a glimpse into your life or, or even if we looked into your calendar, is there any indication that your priorities reflect the kingdom of God? Or do you just look like everyone else in your neighborhood? How about as a Christian, are you distinct or different in your actions? Do you watch the same trash on Netflix like your co-workers or are you different? Now, look, I'm not trying to be legalistic there. I, I talked about that a few weeks ago, but I'm just simply asking the question, are your actions different from the non-Christians in your life? Because at some level they should be if you want to maintain that saltiness, if you want to shine that light. What about your attitude? Is it different from the world? Do you grumble and complain like everyone else? Do you despair and, like everyone else? Or is your life marked by joy and thankfulness? I mean, when was the last time you really stopped and took time to, to just simply express gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord and to those in your life? Uh, last question here is this. Do you live an overtly Christian life or are you trying to live incognito? Like, are you the CIA of Christianity or are you more like the Secret Service? You know what I mean by that? The CIA, they're really good at blending in. Whereas I don't know why they picked the name Secret Service, because it's always super obvious when they're around. Like, uh, you know, sunglasses, black suit, black SUV. I wonder who that is, you know. And so which one are you? Again, is it obvious to those around you that you are a Christian, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, look, I'm not, I'm not saying you've got to be, you know, the kind of person who has Christian bumper stickers all over their car or the kind of person who wears T-shirts that say, you know, I heart Jesus or instead of, you know, I love New York City, it's I heart Jesus or, you know, got Jesus instead of got milk. You don't have to wear those T-shirts. You don't have to have the bumper stickers. 
But what I am saying is this. Would it surprise maybe a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor to find out that you are a follower of Jesus? Would they think to themselves, oh, really, Joe? Joe's a Christian? I, I had no idea. Would it surprise them? Now, look, I'll be honest with you guys. This isn't easy. You know, I, I, I want to be liked and accepted as much as you do. You know, for me, I, I, when I first had the desire to become a pastor, it was about 11 or 12 years ago. And I just, I just couldn't wait for the day to be able to, to introduce myself to someone and say, oh, you know, I'm a pastor. I, I work at a church. And I know that's kind of weird. You probably don't have, I think it's maybe that's where that calling kicked in because you probably don't have that desire. But uh, it was weird. And I, I think in my mind, I, I, I felt like there was a, uh, I was excited to be able to do that because I felt like there was some pride and respect that came along with that title. But by the time I actually became a pastor, which was like a year and a half ago, uh, you know, in that 10-year period, culture has shifted and changed quite a bit. And so if I'm being honest here, there are oftentimes now when I dread the question from people, what do you do for a living? And maybe it's just because Faith and I live in Clintonville, but the reason that I sometimes dread it is because I feel like in telling people I'm a pastor, it's like I'm admitting uh, to working at a puppy mill or something. You know, the kind of the reaction I get is, oh... Oh, you're one of those people, are you? You know, you know, abuse puppies or whatever. And again, maybe it's just my context. I don't know. Maybe it's just the neighborhood we live in. All I know is that things are different now. And I think they're only becoming more so. You see, the truth is, for all of us, being salt and light in the world is to live a life unafraid of believing and speaking and living out the truth. Which, again, I, I think is hard to do in our day. It requires risk. It requires courage. You know, I, you could disagree with this, but I do think it's more costly to be a Christian today in America than it was 10, 20, or even 50 years ago. You see, 30, 40 years ago, Billy Graham could stand up on a stage or he could get on national television and he could say things like, you need to repent of your sins. You need to turn to Jesus Christ. You must be born again. And he would say those things and people would hear him. And number one, they would generally know what he was talking about. But not only that, for most of them, it, it seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like, you know, it's part of becoming an adult. You come to Christ. Now, look, I'm not saying everyone who heard him became a Christian. Obviously, that's not true. But what I am saying is that at some level, it was more socially acceptable. And the truth is, is I, I think personally that neither one of those two things is true anymore. Not only do people not understand those religious terms the way that they used to, but they also don't believe that becoming a Christian is the right thing to do. It's not the socially acceptable thing to do. Now, look, I, I realize both in Billy Graham's day and in our own day that that the gospel is offensive and that people reject it. I also recognize that in our day and his day that, that uh, people rejected the Bible. But the difference is, is if in the 1950s you believed in miracles or the supernatural, things like the virgin birth or the resurrection, it may have made, you, you may have been treated as naive or maybe even just foolish. But now in 2017, if you accept the Bible's authority, and uh, specifically when it comes to its sexual ethic, you may end up losing your job. Or you may end up even being accused of hate speech. And those are two vastly different realities. I mean, Chris said uh, last week, 
Persecution comes when there is a clashing of two irreconcilable value systems. And that is certainly what we have today. And as I said earlier in the message, there is and there will always be a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And yet it just seems like the conflict is a little more obvious today. And so now that some of us are afraid and depressed, uh, what are we to do? Maybe you're not. I don't know. I kind of was putting this message together. I'm like, dang, (laughs) went into the wrong career. Uh, Just kidding. Um, So what are we to do? What is the pathway for us to live this calling out? Well, that brings us to the last point here, and that's the course. You know, we saw earlier in the, the passage this morning that Jesus has given us as his followers a call. He has given us a mission. But we also saw in this passage that he's given us a warning. He, he's warned us that, if it, that, that conflict's going to tempt us to hide our lights, that the conflict's going to tempt us to lose our saltiness by compromising. And so as we think about the course, the pathway, uh, let me just walk through a number of questions here. Number one, what is this call? uh, What is it all about? What is it for? Well, look back down at verse 16. Jesus says this. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And what? That they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. You see, your life and this call that God has placed on your life is about the glory of God. I don't know why it's this way. I don't know why God chooses to use you and I, these broken, imperfect human beings in his mission to reach the world. Like, I don't know why when we share the gospel or when we do good works, he gets more glory. I just know that's what the Bible says. Like, it seems to me, if I was God, uh, I would do it this way. I would just show up every... Well, for one, after someone became a Christian, I would just zap them up to heaven so they didn't screw anything else up or, you know, shame me or something. And so I would zap them up. And then I would just show up every day in the clouds and just say, hey, I'm God. You need to believe in me. Okay, people, you know, something like that. It seems like that would give him more glory. And yet, for whatever reason... When you and I, when we partner with him in this calling, in this mission, when we do that, he gets more glory. And so that's why we do this. This is about the glory of God. Therefore, we can set aside our own desires. We can set aside our own fears because this is about him. A second question here is this. How do we endure the conflict then? How do we keep from from wanting to lose our saltiness or hiding our lights? Well, again, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to trust. You know, this is a, a little bit of a newer thought I've been thinking the last month or so, so don't hold it against me if you disagree. But um, lately, I've just been wondering if the primary thing that God wants from us is for us as his children to really trust and believe that he is good. You see, when Adam and Eve were in the garden with the fall of man, uh, Adam and Eve sinned, I think, because at some level they doubted the goodness of God. Remember, Satan, he he deceived them into thinking that God was holding out on them. You you remember the story that uh, Satan uh, comes to Eve and and she's telling him about the tree. And she says that, you know, God said, no, if we eat it, we'll die. And and he comes back with, you're not going to die. Who are you kidding? You're not going to die. No, the reason God said that is because he, he, he knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him. And he doesn't want you to be like him. 
He's holding out on you. He's not good. And I, I think that's Satan's favorite lie on all of us is to try to get us to believe that God is not good and that we can't trust him. I mean, we see this lie play out all over the Bible. I mean, you know, God rescues Israel from this horrible slavery in Egypt. And yet almost immediately they get out in the wilderness and they begin to question God's goodness. They say things like, oh, God, you only brought us out here so that you could kill us. It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. In fact, we want to go back to Egypt. And it's a lie. God wanted to bless them so much, but they were just unwilling to believe that he was good, that he was for them. You know, I got to be honest, I'm, I'm tempted to fall right into this trap. You know, recently I was driving home from work uh, from the office here and, and uh, I was just going down Olentangy River Road. And I just begin to be overwhelmed with how good God's been in my life. I just begin to thank him for my wife, for my children, for my job. I'm just like, Lord, thank you that I just get to I get to do this. Uh, you know, I get to look at your Bible and teach people and and help with our life groups. And I'm just so thankful, God. You're just so good. And then immediately this thought popped in my mind. Well, I, I, I bet he's just like preparing me for something hard that's about to happen. Like, I bet I just feel really good right now because like tomorrow my wife's going to get cancer and die or, you know, something like that. Like he's just and, and, and I've had that thought before, but this time was different. I felt like the Holy Spirit immediately stopped me. And he said this. He said, do you do that to your kids? You give your kids good gifts. You come home from work with, with you know, a new toy from, from uh, the store. And then you do that so that later that night you can then just, you know, yell at them or something. No, you don't do that to your kids. And you think I would do that to you? And it was right after that, that, that cheesy song. Well, it's not really cheesy. Actually, I've grown to love it. But I think at the time I didn't like it. But that song, Good, Good Father, popped into my head. And I just begin to sing and proclaim, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. And that's who I am. See, I think if we're going to endure the conflict and the persecution, if we're going to be bold enough to maintain lives that are distinctive in this culture, it's going to take us experientially knowing and believing that God is good and that we can trust him. Even when, circumstantially, it doesn't seem that way. And so let's move on to the last question here. And this is really, I think, the key point of the passage. And that is this. How do we live this out? How do we practice? What practically does it look like for us to be salt and light? Well, again, according to verse 16, it looks like letting our light shine has to do with letting others see our good works. You know, Mike shared a few weeks ago as we finished the book of Colossians that, that we are to share the gospel verbally. But I think if we're going to take this passage seriously, we have to also say that that alone is not enough. It's going to take us doing good works. And I think especially in our culture today, we've, we've lost some credibility as Christians. And it's going to take us serving and loving our neighbors and the world around us for us to be even able to have a place to share the gospel verbally. You know, Mike, he, he joked around, but it is true. He said, some people aren't Christians in our world today because they've never met one. Other people aren't Christians in our world today because they have met some. And so we have to ask ourselves, is there a quality and even a quantity of good works in our lives that are evident to those around us? In other words, with those that we live work and play alongside, would they be able to point to specific words or deeds that they have seen in our lives that have positively impacted them? 
You see, see, I think some of us will be called to act as salt and light in big and defining ways. Some of us will be called maybe to enter the realm of politics or 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 the realm of education to try to to bring about uh, cultural change through fighting injustice. However, I think others of us will be called to be salt and light in simple, everyday ways. Things like raising godly and respectful children or caring for our elderly parents. We're getting to know and love and serve our neighbors. You know, for some of us, we can be salt and light by just being a good employee, by staying off our iPhones at work. It's amazing. It's just that simple. Like, just don't touch your phone at work, and automatically you're an amazing employee. I mean, this is a little bit of a silly example, but the other day, Faith and I were home. I think it was a couple Mondays ago I was off, and and someone knocked at the door, and and so I went and opened it, and there were these two guys, and they, you know, they're trying to sell something. Um, but I opened the door. I didn't instead, you know, dive on the floor and pretend like I wasn't home, like, kids, get down. They're going to see us. <laughs> instead, I opened the door, and, and, I let, and we're talking, and it was kind of cold that day, and so I invited them in, and um, we just began to talk, and, you know, they were giving me their spiel, and I was listening, and... and um, it came up like, what do you do for a living? And so I, I actually, I think before that, at one point, the guy just blurted out. He's like, man, you guys are like the nicest people in Clintonville. And my first thought was, well, that's probably not hard to do. <laughs> it's not a huge expectation. Um, but my second thought was, wow, how sad is that? And so, again, maybe for some of us being salt, I think for all of us, actually, being salt and light is maybe just treating people with respect, with dignity. You know, things like making eye contact with someone, shaking their hand, saying hi. I I really like what one author, Margaret Feinberg, wrote. She said this. I would hope people would look at us and say, those Christians are the ones who run in when everyone else runs out. Those Christians are the ones who didn't give up on the crumbling inner cities. Those Christians are the ones who put an end to human trafficking. Those Christians are the ones who helped win the war on AIDS around the world. Those Christians are the ones who write incredible lyrics, who pen those unforgettable books and create artwork that's mesmerizing. Those Christians are the ones who helped my mother when she got Alzheimer's. Those Christians are the ones who were kind to me when I was new to the area. Those Christians are the ones who made me want to believe in God. And so if that's going to be true of us here this morning, if we're going to live the kind of life that we've been called to, how are we going to have the strength and the courage, and the resources to actually be able to live this way. Well, again, as Chris said last week, we can't do this without a new life. We can't do this without the new hero. You see, unless you and I are connected to the true light of the world, we can't shine on anything. I think our ability to shine is directly tied to our connection with Christ. How how many of you guys know what this thing is? It might be kind of hard to see. That's one of those crappy solar lights that people put in their yards. I actually stole it from the courtyard. Um, How how do these things work? Yeah, the sun. Yeah, what happens is during the day, they just sit out there and they just collect the, I don't, I mean, I don't know technically how they work, but I'm just guessing that they collect the, the energy from the sun. So then at night when you stick it out, it's able to shine. Now, what would happen if I would take this like I did this week and I put it in my desk drawer and just let it sit there for a day and then I went out at night and stuck it in the ground? Well, what would happen? Well, it wouldn't shine. 
And in the same way, if I think if you and I are going to truly live out our calling to be the light of the world, then we have to make sure that we are spending sufficient time with the sun, the S-O-N sun. I know that's cheesy. I don't care. Um, and so if we want to be empowered enough to actually impact the world and remember, as our past has talked about this morning, this is God's glory. His glory, our ability to impact the world is, is a way that we display his glory. And it's a worthy calling to give our lives to. But again, how are we going to do it? How are we going to live it out? It's going to take us pressing into Jesus, spending time with him, dwelling in his presence. Because then and only then will we be able to have the resources and the courage and the ability to actually live out this call. You know, I've been reading through, uh, started in Genesis in January, and, and I don't, I think I'm in Samuel now. But when I went through Exodus this last time, I was just so struck by Moses' relationship with God. You know, he would go to that tent of meeting with the Lord, and when he would come out, his face would be radiant. It would be so full of light that he would actually have to put a veil over it because the people were just, they were blinded by the lights. I just think that's what the Lord's calling us to. He's calling us to, to, to be with him so that we can then go out and impact the world. Uh, Nick and Abby, you guys can go ahead and come on up. I'm going to finish by, by reading a passage that I think really uh, ties up this whole message, that really illustrates the, the whole passage here. And, and it's in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. Starting in verse 9, Peter writes this. He says, But you... You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors or uh, sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only do good and not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we, we love you so much. God, thank you that we have, if we know you, have returned to the, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Lord, as I just said, Lord, you do love us. You're so good. You're so worthy of our trust and our affections. God, I just pray for myself and my friends here, Lord, that we could live out this calling on our lives to be salt and light to a world that desperately needs it. And so, Jesus, would you, would you just help us? Would you help us just to lean into you, to press into you, to spend the time with you that it takes to be able to then impact our world? We just pray this in your name. Amen.